From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT shop has it all. Browse our shop now at TNTradio.live. Perception versus the truth. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome back to Connecting the Dots. This is your third hour. And um, I've got to say that last week I was uh, on a platform uh, discussing the origins, the nature of the shadow government. And uh, I was one of the other people who was speaking on this platform was a fellow named Brady. Brady is a geopolitical analyst. He goes by the name War Hamster, as in nom de guerre. Uh, has a very, very interesting uh, collection of videos, presentations, and I, I've really come to appreciate Brady's analysis uh, on this very important topic that affects all of our lives. And especially since in our previous hour, we were alluding to with pr- uh, Professor Trusadovsky, the uh, the nature of empire as relying upon economic warfare and the illusion of capitalism without any of the real substance of what made capitalism viable in the first place, which is creating capital, creating opportunities. That part isn't so important for people like Klaus Schwab or the World Economic Forum freaks um, who like using it simply as a cover to advance feudalism um, and the destruction, ironically, of capital. So Brady has done a lot of work on this. Brady, thank you for being our third guest today. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. And I got to humbly say that a lot of my homework uh, came from watching some of Matt's shows and, um, you know, he led me down some great rabbit holes and I just, you know, went a little bit deeper than most. And uh, so I appreciate all you do, Matt. Ah, fantastic. Well, this is a great little uh, dance of the intellect. So I'm I'm really, really happy that we can both give and share. Um, And I'm sure that I'm going to be taking notes as I always do when I listen to you speak. Um, You have been putting forth some of your research and analysis regarding um, the role of how multinational corporations are able to utilize um, legalese to justify favoring their benefits over nation states. Um, could you could you elaborate on on your your findings, your thoughts on this important topic? Yeah, that comes from a lot of different angles and they, they never stop doing it. Um, it's one of those things where you can't whack them all every single one of these schemes. But what they've basically done is um, you've got these technocrats, uh, lawyers, international lawyers, and they craft trade deals. And in all of these trade deals, uh, it'll be about 400 pages of language that are creating um, something that goes along with the, uh, it's called the ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement. And it's a way of legally leveraging investor rights over the sovereign rights of people who live in their own countries. Um, it, it's something that really started to be put in place post-World War II, but didn't really pick up steam until after the Cold War. So you're saying this, this is built into the GATT system, like the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or did this come in later on after that? Uh, you'd see it, and it would have been in TTIP, it was in NAFTA, in CAFCA, all of those trades. Okay. Every single one of these trade deals, and there's hundreds of them, mm-hmm. um, the lawyers get to work, and they basically, you're, you're signing, your country is signing away its sovereign rights. And you don't really have a whole lot of choice, because if you're going to enter into the Western banking system, uh, coming out of the Cold War, or uh, you know from behind the Soviet wall, uh, or these Latin American companies have finally got their, uh, and African companies just got their independence post World War II. Uh, if you want to be a uh, beneficiary of the IMF or the World Bank, you are de facto signing these trade deals. And that la- the language for these ISTS, investor state Distru- dispute settlements, are written in every single one of them. And, you know, I'll put it out there right now. You know, we saw the establishment, deep state, whatever you want to call it, the cartel, the cabal. 
the uh, um, whatever we want to call this ruling hand, uh, they took out, they spent a lot of time and effort to try to take out Donald Trump. And I would suggest that his um, pulling out of trade deals and recrafting uh, NAFTA was a big part of that, why they wanted, because there's trillions of dollars at stake. I mean, this is not a small thing. This is really how the multinational corporations uh, leverage what they call international law, even though there's no such thing, um, basically to steal your sovereign rights. And there's a whole lot of examples of this. Yeah, a lot of people, they, 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 they will tend to, I think, oversimplify what Trump was and dismiss him as just another creature of the system, fake up controlled opposition, and not really pay too much time looking at, well, what was he doing on the issue of uh, dealing with the problem of NAFTA? What was, A lot of these people don't even know what NAFTA really was in the first place, let alone what 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 his battle was against it, what he did, or the TPP in the, on the Pacific front. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more about like what what was NAFTA and and how did Trump, what did he do to obstruct or to um, to create something different? Um, yeah, NAFTA is you know, it's one of many trade deals, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And anytime they say free trade, you probably want to you know, put up a little bit of a caution flag because what they call free trade is anything but. Uh, with their, these free trade agreements are our carve-outs for the multinational corporations, those people who sit closest to the seats of power or the negotiators. And they get carve outs. It's um, it's like protective tariffs. Uh, it goes, you know, this goes back hundreds of years. It's just a modern version of the protective tariff. And you know, you can make an argument for or against tariffs, but if, when you're favoring one one business over others, uh, this is not free trade. It's just the opposite. Um, and and NAFTA is just like all the others. Um, I think the TTIP that Trump halted. That was the uh, was that the one that was going to uh, was it the Asia. American one. Yeah, the the, uh, the Trans Pacific Partnership is what you're, yeah. you're thinking of. I think that was isolating yeah. China and just like trying to lock everybody in the Pacific around this uh, this new uh, free trade deal. Yep, yeah. So when you hear free trade, that's you, you want to read you want to read the fine print because it's anything but the history yeah, in, is interesting, right? You, in what way? It, how how is how is free trade used? Because I know that there's there's not like just like protectionism, it could be, there could be a good application or bad application depending upon context, but in what way have empires utilized free trade uh, or protectionism for that matter as a cover for benefiting themselves at the expense of nation states? You want me to talk modern or historically? Uh, anyway, historically, uh, yeah. anyway. Yeah, well, historically, we know, you know, we know about the British East India uh, Company um, and anybody connected with that. Yeah, they were able to get special carve-outs, special trading rights, special permissions. Uh, and we, we talked about it the other day. Um, you know, the difference between a pirate and a privateer is a piece of paper. Right. It's the same concept. You know, they, they're just legalizing, uh, you know, what would otherwise be illegal because they have a document to, you know, that says they can. You know, that's really what all these free trade agreements are. The ISDS are particularly insidious um, because... Well, again, again, if you're a country coming out of the cold, joining the modern banking system, uh, and you want to be eligible for World Bank or IMF loans, you have to sign these deals. Uh, there was a Nazi banker by the name of Hermann Abs, and he made a famous speech in 1957 calling for a quote-unquote capitalist Magna Carta. And basically, um, what, what was happening at the time is you saw in 1953, the CIA tried to take out Mossadegh in Iran. Um, in 54, 1954, the CIA had to take out the president of Guatemala he was trying to redistribute land back to the peasants. In 56, yeah. Yeah, President uh, Nasser in Egypt was trying to nationalize the Suez Canal. Well, these multinational corporations are losing control, and they realize they've got to do something. 
And that's why they started putting these trade deals and crafting them the way they did. Uh, Post-Cold War, uh, they were in place during the Cold War, but it's only post-Cold War that they really started to explode. And that's because you saw all these former nations in Eastern Europe that were behind the Iron Curtain were joining the, I guess, the civilized, civilized nations of the West. And they had to uh, join this joint economic globalist system. And it came with a lot of strings attached. Um, Is this what uh, we hear when we hear about uh, IMF or World Bank conditionalities? Uh, Is this the sort of thing that we're talking about here? That's that's exactly it, Matt. That's exactly what it is. They they, you know, they they basically force you to sign these deals. And um, there's a um, you know, if you live in some some of these countries like El Salvador uh, or uh, other countries that have been victims of a private corporation suing you, basically you don't. What will happen is a, a government will try to put some regulations in place, like okay, your mining, uh, your mining practices are dangerous to local pop, local population. So we, we want you to put some safety measures in, you know, so you don't get to pollute the rivers or towns. And these corporations will basically be able to go to an international court and say, look, you're damaging my future potential to make money as an investor. That's why it's called an investor state dispute settlement. And it's really hard to quantify how much you're losing in this, but it's heard before a three panel, uh, three panel um, appellate uh, group, whatever. Uh, these are non-elected, uh, just appointed judges. There is no appeals process whatsoever. And sometimes the settlements reach in hundreds of millions of dollars. It gets more fun. Um, there's a great story, I forget the name of the company, but it was an American company was getting regulated by California. And they couldn't do, they couldn't use an ISDS or the American courts to sue for their rights. So they went up to Canada, started a subsidiary and sued this, uh, sued the state of California under the ISDS agreement as a foreign, as a foreign entity and got paid like $18 million in uh, future uh, losses, income loss. So it, uh, it's pretty sketchy how the, how this stuff works. Wow. Wow. I, I'm wondering when when Trump came in, and I know that that was a an all out brawl for several years to to scrap NAFTA and and reorganize the whole thing. Um, I know one of the things that uh, Christia Freeland went, you know, she she went and complained to the World Trade Organization that he was infringing on the uh, the I guess the, the the program within NAFTA, which nobody seems to have even read. There was executive summaries, but even to this day, the thousands and thousands of pages that go into NAFTA have remained classified nobody nobody except for like a um people like an, a grouping of initiates permitted to see sort of seize i don't know what gives them security clearance but all that to say that within those secret files um were protocols that banned things like the use of national protectionism which was what trump was bringing in as one of those elements was there anything else like what, what was that story about what was that battle what was trump bringing in that replaced it with the the u.s canada mexico trade agreement how is it different from nafta well i think a lot of those uh trade deals were i, I think what he did is more what he got rid of than what he added he eliminated yeah. an awful lot of the carve-outs um with the new deal um it's been a while since i went deep into the new agreement since obviously that's sort of been shelved in the meantime although i think it's that's that, yeah. that trade agreement the trade trump put in place is still in it's still intact and it seems to be beneficial yeah, they, for them yeah yeah um I was going to say the um, what I always look at is where the opposition to Trump came from and, these, and who's supporting these trade deals. And an awful lot of the anti-Trump uh, money here in the U.S. is comes from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
who ostensibly is supposed to represent all businesses, but it, it, at its core, it, it's follow the money. It's these multinational corporations that we all know their names. And now it's a lot of the tech companies have an awful lot of uh, sway uh, when it comes to what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce does. But the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is really at the fort of the opposition to Trump's policies. And mm. that probably should not be the case. I mean, how many people can even name the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce? He's one of the most powerful people in, in America. And Great uh, point. You know, it's, it's, it is the biggest lobbyist for the Republican Party is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Mm. So, No, it's it's humbling, you know, to, to think about um, it's sobering, maybe not humbling, sobering to think about the power that the World Trade Organization and these these international um, trade courts. Um, I didn't even know about the ISDS until you brought it up to me um, have in terms of giving more power to private entities over entire nations, sovereign nations or states within nations that are mandated to protect the people and are 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 that's why we have nation states is to protect is is for the nation to organize sovereign individuals to select representation to defend themselves and their interests against the British East India Company and against these private um you know nominally private oligarchs that uh, that have done so much damage for thousands of years that's why we have the modern nation state so to to have this arbitrary innovation that's been brought online that uh, that that empowers this oligarchy to do this type of damage um, under the the framework of law. I guess is this is this what you would think of when uh, we hear people like uh, Biden talking about the rules ba- the rules of the rules based international order? I, is that what he's talking about? That absolutely it ties right into that. Uh, what do they call it? the rules based uh, transatlantic rules based post World War II society? They got all these nice little acronyms for this stuff, but that really what it, it's it's what came out of um, oh shoot, what was the name of the um, economic framework when the U.S. dollar became the hegemon. Oh, the, the Bretton Woods. Thank you. Thank you. Why do I forget yeah. that one? That's a common one. I'll give you a great example of just how insidious this this kind of power is. In South Africa, it's been about 15, 20 years ago, um, they were basically uh, going to these mining companies, other multinational mining companies, and saying, look, we need to re- we're going to redistribute some of your uh, company, like 30%, needs to go to the indigenous people who've suffered under your um, uh, irresponsible uh, practices. And, you know, South African government is, you know, it's communist, redistribution's not a great thing. But uh, as you say correctly, they are a sovereign nation state and they can make their own laws in their own country. Well, there was a mining company out of uh, the Netherlands um, that threatened to sue South Africa under this ISDS said, look, you're going to give away 30% of our company. We're going to, you know, we need hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation for our future profits. It's right here in this treaty. Not only did South Africa settle with them, but they kept it quiet. And the reason they did that is they didn't want other companies to get the idea that they could blackmail the government of South Africa. Now, I mentioned El Salvador earlier. Well, you ask anybody from El Salvador, they know exactly what an ISDS is because they fought back against it and went public. Uh, their government uh, absolutely fought back. And uh, so, you know, you have an uneducated El Salvadorian knows about these international trade agreements, but you, know, you talk about, you have lawyers here in the United States have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's very real. And you just have to read the trade agreements. They're there. Yeah. No, that's good. And uh, when we come back from a quick break on TNTradio.live, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to also introduce the green agenda a little bit into this, since I'm sensing that this is going to play into the discussion quite a bit. So we'll, we're going to come back after a short break, TNTradio.live. 
TNT's Bruce de Torres. The Who's proposed treaty will increase man-made pandemics by Merrill Nass. Just a minute about this. This report is designed to help readers think about some big topics. How to really prevent pandemics and biological warfare. How to assess proposals by the WHO and its members for responding to pandemics. And whether we can rely on our health officials to navigate these areas in ways that make sense and will help the population. Populations. We start with the history of biological arms control and rapidly move to the COVID pandemic, eventually arriving at plans to protect the future. She didn't put protect in quotes, but I just did verbally. World Stage and Bruce de Torres on today's News Talk TNT. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the type 1 community, and we're accountable to the type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. All right, welcome back to Connecting the Dots on TNTradio.live. I'm here joined by Brady, a.k.a. Warhamster, geopolitical analyst and historian. Um, Brady, before the break, you were saying something that I found just very, very interesting and I think so important for people to think about regarding how the, how empire has manifested itself. Like we've been told, oh, we're... Empire was a problem before World War II, and then the world went free, and all of the former nations of the of the British Empire got it, got their independence. And yeah, we got some problems of empire now and again, but overall, it's it's pretty. It's been free, and and a lot of these people are they they drink a lot of of official narratives and propaganda from their school uh, textbooks, and don't see that the World Bank, the IMF, the uh, the World Trade Organization have been actually the hand of empire, the, the financial warfare needed to keep nations underdeveloped artificially, whether Africa, Latin America, or anywhere, and keep corporate private interests, banking and corporate alike, above the influence of the sovereign nation states of this world. They just don't know. They've been so miseducated. So I love what you're doing, but something you said really shocked me, which is that it is possible to sue in court as a private enterprise against a government that might want to develop infrastructure, a dam or build a bridge in an area that might disrupt an ecosystem because that corporation could say, well, that ecosystem that might be disrupted has a certain amount of potential value that I am going to lose out on if 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 
that dam is built, providing electricity to the people or that that whatever, right? Name name a point of infrastructure that would be beneficial to the people. And so the, a court will rule against the nation that either that can't happen, you're not allowed, or that you have to pay that X amount of money to that to that company, which is not going to do anything. They they're just total win for that that private company and a total lose for the the nation that otherwise has a bunch of people rep, being represented. Um, this seems to flow directly. This seems to merge these two. What I, what I often see treated as two different ideas of of eco imperialism and financial imperialism. It seems to be that these are united now increasingly as two sides of the same blob. Is that how you, is that a fair characterization? No, that's more than fair. In fact, that's, it's really uh, impressive how you connect those dots because that's exactly where I was going to be going with it because uh, that's a hundred percent the case. Um, you hear this climate alarmism, uh, which is it's basically, you know, if we say we're doing something to save the planet, to make it green and everything like that, we can get away with an awful lot uh, of, you know, monopolization of the world's resources. And this, you know, it all stems back from the old mercantilist uh, vision that the world is, we have finite resources and it is basically a mercantilist job is to gather gather under Caesar that which is Caesar's. It's, it's, a, it's a giant land grab and a resource grab. And they do it under the guise of, you know, climate alarmism. In 2021, the New York Stock Exchange uh, proposed a rule change. Um, they wanted to create a new type of investment vehicle called an NAC, which is a natural asset company. Um, basically, the idea is you name it, they call it nature's economy. And it's just they were basically trying to securitize the air you breathe, the water you drink, the fruit you grow. They want to securitize this. And basically, what they do, uh, you get a bunch of investors together. They claim they, they create a national a natural asset company, an NAC. And they, basically they own, let's say, all the water rights in Brazil. Well, the people of Brazil are supposed to own their own water rights, but they, they're basically assuming uh, the sovereign status of that or so sovereign oversight of that, and they, they, they can securitize it. To put it into perspective, the global economy right now is about $500 trillion, uh, all, all securities in the world, uh, all the stock exchanges, bond exchanges. The, the NACs are supposed to represent four quadrillion dollars worth of market potential. Uh, and they put this forward as a new rule change and try to put these into place. Uh, the Rockefellers were part one of the three parties involved in that, shockingly. Hmm. And Shocking. um, about three or four weeks ago, uh, they pulled that, uh, they pulled the application off the table. The NACs are now dead on arrival. Uh, I've been talking about them for a few months. Uh, Whitney Webb has done some great work on this back in 2021. So if you want to read more about that, go look up Whitney Webb. She, I think she's probably done the best, but enough people put pressure on these globalists that they actually had to pull this one off the table. Uh, so we did get one victory there, but it doesn't mean they're not going to try it again. It was just the same idea. The, 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 you remember when they were trying to do the climate exchanges, the carbon exchanges. Mm -hmm. you know, most people don't know that Barack Obama was one of the original investors in the Chicago Climate Exchange in the early 2000s. Yeah, he, that, that's now defunct. But the idea is they were going to create a market out of nowhere uh, with these carbon credits. And so they want to monetize, securitize the very air you breathe. And that, that was on the table and that, that one's still probably going to show up again. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, it, this question of potential is such a, 
an, an important but easily um, abused concept. And in, in Vladimir Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson, he made a, an allusion. He, he made a point um, regarding uh, the question of economic value and the difference in paradigm regarding the, you know, he's specifically speaking at, at the time about the Russian relationship with China based on looking for points of uh, compromise, points of production, creation that would benefit all sides. And China's different philosophy from that of the West. And he cited Bismarck and he said, look, Bismarck made the point. Everything is potential. And it's true. Like potential is key because it's like what hasn't been done yet. It's that's that's the place where our creativity, our minds, our discoveries that we haven't made yet lives in that domain of potential. But in that domain of potential is also a lot of destruction. Right? The lack of those discoveries, the 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 ignorance and the outcome of ignorance, ignorant actions. So it seems like what you're saying is that this this particular um, natural asset company and the the green um, definition of value is tied more to the potential not to do things like to 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 keep whole regions of the the ecosystem or the, the the world out of the domain of the economy such that we're putting value on things that we're going to not touch. The more we don't touch them, the more the value increases. Or inversely, I guess if, if, a, if a mining company <laughs> wants to, they could just like take control of national territory because they're, they're stakeholders and they should just own the uh, this region of of uh, Amazon jungle or the the, you know, the lithium fields below it because it's uh, it's somehow going to protect nature, I guess. It seems like all of this is sort of just benefiting these rapacious companies that are that are destroying nature by putting a value on um, <laughs> reducing the carbon footprint. It's kind of weird, right? Yeah. yeah, well, you just follow the money. Who are the people that are donating to these NGOs that give you the guise of, you know, being a green agenda? Um, that's mm -hmm. it, it's a cover. It's a cover for it's it's basically uh, modern day piracy. Uh, what they're doing is they're, you know, trying to get all the resources under themselves. Right. Give you a, another fun example, um, something most people haven't heard about it. It's called GFANS, G-F-A-N-Z. That's the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And anytime you hear Net Zero, uh, again, big warning sign. So GFANS is a, uh, was a conference launched in 2021. Uh, John Kerry, the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, or he was, uh, he just uh, left, stepped down from that role. And uh, you know who stepped into it? I believe the uh, Pedro Podesta. Yep, that's the one. I figured you'd know. Yeah, John Podesta, Hillary's former campaign manager, is now running a point on climate. Um, Janet Yellen was involved. And, of course, Mark Carney was uh, uh, the um, former Bank of England and Bank of Canada uh, chair. So they're all involved. You've got about um, – well, one they, they love their acronyms, Matt. They really do. Uh, one of the things they created was called the Net Zero Banking Alliance, NZBA. And to put that into perspective, the NZBA, the banks behind it, control 43% of all global banking assets. What they're aiming to do is further corporatize multinational, multilateral development banks, MDBs. MDBs are like the World Bank. They've long been criticized for trapping developed nations in debt and then using that debt to force those nations to deregulate markets, uh, specifically financial markets. They talk about stakeholder capitalism, which you brought up. Uh, real quick, let me tell you the, the top players at G fans, because you're going to mm -hmm. hear some familiar names. BlackRock, Citibank, 
Bank of America, Bank of Santander, the biggest money laundering bank, HSBC, and of course, the David Rockefeller Fund. Never, wow. Rockefellers are always going to be involved in this stuff. Real um, rogues, rogues gallery. Yeah. I mean, and we, we, we know about how they, um, you know, these IMF loans are used to impoverish uh, third world countries. And I think that's something you talk quite a bit about when you talk about how China and the brick and road is doing something not quite as insidious or onerous. They actually get these companies a chance not to be stomped on uh, under the um, under debt that you can never get out of. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a different philosophy. And I'm, for anybody who's still confused about that, I, I suggest uh, check out the uh, the Tucker Carlson Putin uh, discussion from a couple of days ago. It's uh, it's really important because Putin actually took the time to unpack and educate a Western audience about um, what is China. He did a very a very effective job at, at getting across this different paradigm and and conception of economic value that is animating the the building of things like the Belt and Road Initiative. Which is very different from things that we're we. I mean, we don't do. We used to do things like that. I mean, I I've 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 read stories <laughs> before I was born, and probably before you were born too. There is there is like a, an ethic of building real things in the real world and increasing productivity that was tied to our idea of, of a healthier form of capitalism, and and that's long gone. Like we have totally lost it. Um. So it's it's really like I said, sobering to hear you just describe in in the summary fashion just how this sleight of hand happened because it's not like we went straight from industrial capitalism into um feudalism like just like that there's been a gradualism and it seems like the fact that they spread it out over the course of a few decades of globalization has resulted in people kind of being more adaptive more mushy more incapable of identifying how we lost <laughs> our our sensibilities and gave into this whole thing, right? I mean, if if they if they had done this quicker, they, it, we probably wouldn't have fallen for it. No, that's a, that's that's a great point. It's death by a thousand cuts. You know, if he were to come out and say, "Here's what what America is going to be in you know ten years from now," everyone would have said, "No, not just no, but hell no." And but if you just incrementally do it, and you hear about you know people that are threats to these to our institutions, well, good. These institutions are not doing what they say they're doing. You know, we need more people that are threats to them. Yeah, you brought up an interesting term, um, stakeholder capitalism, and that's one of the that's a, that's a topic I need to. When I start writing my Substack, it's going to be one of the first articles I write. I've done a little bit of homework on this because you're supposed to have shareholder capitalism, not stakeholder. And stakeholder capitalism came out of the Green Revolution of the 1970s, once again backed by Rockefellers. Philosophically, I, uh, this one's near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who I admire quite a bit. Uh, wrote um, the it's the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now he took that from a century before John Locke, who originally wrote Life, Liberty, and Property. Now, if we still had property in our Declaration of Independence instead instead of the pursuit of happiness, stakeholder capitalism would never have been allowed. Um, when they say st stakeholder, you know, if, if you own shares in a company, Matt, you, you've got that comes with some voting rights. It comes with some obligations, liability, and voting rights. Stakeholder capitalism gives some of those rights to people that have no skin in the game, as opposed to shareholder capitalism. And it's used by companies like BlackRock, State, State Street, and um, Vanguard. Uh, and a really interesting thing happened in the 1980s. 
if you go open up a broker uh, brokerage account and you buy stock in AT&T, you let's say you only have 100 shares. Well, you get to vote those 100 shares. That is one of the rights of being a shareholder. If you were to instead put your money in a BlackRock ETF, BlackRock assumes the proxy voting right, and they are actually usurping your shareholder rights. You are a fund holder, but you still have a percentage uh, in the equity that that fund owns AT&T. You still have it, but BlackRock and those companies now have the ability to vote your proxy. So you hear people talk about, you know, BlackRock's the biggest shareholder of XYZ company. Well, that's not true. Their fund is the biggest shareholder, but the people that own shares of the fund are the actual beneficial owners. So that's something that's actually being worked on to this day. And we saw some really good news. Uh, these ESG funds that were being pushed the last five years, uh, they've seen outflows of um, millions of dollars. People are people are not uh, investing. For those in who don't know, what is what is what does an ESG fund stand for? Uh, environmental, social, and governmental uh, score, and uh, basically, if, are you hiring the right amount of people of uh, people of color? Are you hiring the right? You know, are you pushing all these woke agendas? Most importantly, what are you doing working towards net zero? And mm -hmm. net zero is, of course, zero carbon, which is ridiculous because we need carbon to live. Uh, so ESG funds are on the way out. In fact, BlackRock and State Street are both closing up their ESG funds. They are going to be coming back. They'll rebrand it with a different name. But as of right now, that's another way of us pushing back against this stuff. Uh, it's working. And more importantly, these ESG funds were losing money. They were bad investments. And that's why a lot of people left money. But we had a, several state governments, uh, several states in America, uh, have basically kicked out uh, the Black Rocks out of their state uh, pension system because of the ESG issue. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting to see some some pushback and fight back. I I, I like that. And um, before we've got about two minutes for our next before our next commercial break, and I want to just ask you quickly: Isn't it also a bit of a? I'm not against shareholder capitalism as well, but within certain um, conditions at the same time, because it seems to me that left unto itself, if you have like this total, you know, like what 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 Kissinger and, and Zbigniew and George Schultz brought onto the line, brought online in the, in the early 70s, if you have this whole like logic of no national regulation, no protectionism, just complete free for all, you know, anything goes, it, it kind of seems like if you're a, a multi-billionaire or trillionaire, then you would be able to very easily take advantage of that type of shareholder system and just buy up all of the shares anyway and get complete dominance like a little dictator under the the guise of capitalism of whatever whatever corporation you want to control and just you know nudge out all of the smaller players who were smaller shareholders wouldn't that just be like a lawful wouldn't wouldn't global empire and the and the the davos sort of global octopus not be a natural outcome of that sort of laissez-faire well that's, that's exactly what happened uh, that's why yeah. that's the whole cartel system they put in place so how do you what kind of guarantees do we have to 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 keep that in check in a in a in a reasonable way that's a, that's a good question i'm i'll answer on the other side of the break but just That's a, great. You're more that. responsible than I am. All right, let's do that. So let's let's go for a quick break, and uh, we'll come back on TNT Radio Live.
De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the Northern Hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now, I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now, the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working, so I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back for the third segment of the third hour with Brady, a.k.a. Warhamster, and we've been discussing the financialization of the world and how finance capitalism has been merged with eco uh, imperialism to create one giant feudalistically oriented uh, behemoth, which uh, has is all kinds of ugly. And um, and by understanding it, the idea is that we would be less inclined to acquiesce to it, to fall for the traps. Um, I want to ask you today in our final little segment here about your thoughts regarding some of the resistance that we're seeing both on the national levels, but also amongst the, the farmers, the, the citizens organizing in some interesting ways across Europe in uh, North America, we've seen different examples of some uh, some organization in a positive way for the for their for the survival of of Western civilization. I, I would say I don't want to be grandiose here, but I think that's what it is. And also, um, your thoughts a little bit more on the question of um, what we were just talking about before the break um, regarding what is the, what kind of safeguards do we have available since we all kind of have a, a sense increasingly of of how sick the system is and what what a, a an, an incompetent and or evil 
expression of capitalism uh, looks like. But but we lack a sense of like, well, what does a more healthy expression of uh, national capitalism look like? What what sort of mechanisms do we have to work with that would guarantee something that would unite national interest, the collective good, with private private benefits and and the 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 sacredness of the individual liberty, which is I guess always the balance, right? To find the find a way that both can harmonize. Um, so what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, uh, I've given, I've given this one a lot of thought and you're asking a great question. Um, you know, when you get to this kind of pervasive corruption that's, you know, throughout the world, uh, it's gotta be structural. So let's take a look at the structures. Um, these multinational corporations, everyone talks about corporations, but what is a corporation? It's a limited liability corporation. So we've created a legal structure where these entities can get hundred percent of the benefits of ownership and take none of the risk of bad decisions or harming other people. Um, <clears throat> so the history behind that's interesting. <clears throat> Post-Civil War in America, we had the Gilded Age, <clears throat> excuse me, and the robber barons were be able, be able to create these vast cartels and monopolies. And I say cartel because I think it's more accurate than monopoly. Cartels when a group uh, basically decides to collude together, and it exists to 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 for two purposes. You know, why would you create a cartel? Well, you want to maximize your own benefit, but more importantly. You want to eliminate competition, and they do this through government regulation, and that's why corporations donate to, to politicians. That's why we have lobbyists. They want to write rules that benefit their small favored group of the cartel members and make it very difficult, create barriers to entry for any competition. Um, coming out of the uh, Gilded Age, these robber barons, uh, the biggest wealth disparity in American history, even more so than we see today, although it's getting close, the difference between the billionaires and the, and the peasants. Um, they had what were called trusts and these uh teddy roosevelt comes in and said he busted the trusts he's the trust buster well nothing of the sort even happened these companies were to re were reorganized under a new corporate structure uh, a legal entity that became what is known as the modern corporation um the first u.s corporation was united states steel created in 1913 by our favorite law firm sullivan and cromwell working with jp morgan and so now you have owners that have no, basically no liability for the actions of their entities. Now, if you were to, hypothetically, if you were to strip that liability from corporate owners, they would almost be forced to act more responsibly. You would, yeah. you would see a number of, that the, the downhill effects of that would be really interesting. Uh, if you're the you know, major shareholder of a corporation, now without your limited liability, you're going to act more responsibly, but you're also going to have to take out uh, umbrella liability insurance to protect yourself from in case something goes wrong with the company. Yeah. The insurance companies are then going to get involved in all the lawsuits. You're going to find a court, a legal system that's far more efficient, far less expensive, and you're not going to see some of the more ridiculous litigation. Uh, it would have a huge downhill effect if you strip some of that liability. Um, yeah, this, this yeah, no, could, it, it, it's absolutely. And you just see it with big pharma as well, right? Like if you just allowed uh big pharma to pay the price for their, Either, let's just give them the, the benefit of the doubt and say incompetence in trying to rush a product out that results in um, fatalities or sickness or anything else. People are uh, imagine people are allowed to sue a, a, a pharmaceutical company for something that's been put out as a as a vax. Um, oh my god! Like that would be a that would be a game changer. Or or imagine that if you allowed a too big to fail to fail. What if you, what if you allowed a bank to actually fail for making a bad bet? Just allow it. <laughs> like how would that change? so much right yeah it's creative destruction and it works it used to work at least it's what we had once upon a time before the era of bailouts and 
the whole concept too big to fail. And of course, you know, big pharma would never do anything like you suggest. But uh, so because they 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 care about our health. Yeah, you, know, you get these you get these executives, you know, not just the ownership, the executives that make these decisions that do all, untold amounts of harm, and they face no liability for their actions whatsoever. Yeah, you know, so you, I I think we should address that structure. And yeah. I'm not talking about a free for all of you know frivolous lawsuits to happen, but change the structure. Uh, the yeah. incentive right now, the incentive structure, I guess, is 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 wrong, and it allows yeah. um, poor decisions to be made by the richest people in the world. And they don't necessarily have our best interests at heart. Yeah. Well, definitely the people are are, are calling out. We, I mean, we saw it with the truckers convoy in in Ottawa that did have massive reverberations regarding the policies of the the medical dictatorship. But we've also seen it regarding farmer protests all across Belgium, Germany, France. You name it. There's just massive protests where these people are now recognizing that there is an agenda to destroy food production. Um, we see it clearly and we see an actual mobilization against that. And we're seeing I, I, to what degree we're going to get um, some reverberation within the elected representation of the people. I'm I'm still waiting for that. I'm, I, I could see that there are uh, members of the European Parliament, members within various governments of Europe uh, that are that want to do something. They 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 need the people to to back them up. The people also need to run for office i think that that's also a, a factor in it but it, it is it, it is compelling to see this this fight back um in the case of the united states where you live um what are you what is your take right now on the terrain obviously biden has no brain it's jelly um he he called the president of of egypt uh or the president of mexico el Sisi or something um so that's not viable. Uh, Nikki Haley just, uh, I, I forget which which state just had their, um, a, a little bit of a, of a Republican uh, vote to see who would represent as a Republican candidate. I, was it Delaware? No, it wasn't Delaware. Nebraska. Um, no, Nevada, and Nevada was, none of the above. No, it was yeah. Nevada, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where she got like 31% of the vote and none of the above got 62% of the vote, which is hilarious. Um it, it seems like like the the wave is really behind uh, Trump's taking thing or be, basically winning. Um, what is your take on the on the current situation in the United States? Would does Trump have a chance? Do do you think that there's a, what are his biggest challenges that he has to deal with right now? Well, the question is, you know, do we, if we had a, a you know in person ballot system and we had, we knew the elections were going to be 100 percent straight up, um, I think Trump would win, going blown away, you know, running away with it. Um, I worked with a lot of election integrity groups over the last four years, and a lot of um, a lot of steps have been made locally. Uh, to, you're going to have more secure elections in many ways. We've tightened up some of the election laws. There's still too much mail-in balloting, uh, too much mail-in voting. But until that goes away, you're not going to have real secure results. But it's looking, right, you know, right now from the top down, Trump has a really good chance of winning. I, I think even more importantly is what's happening locally. Do do enough people locally grassroots efforts to get people at the you know local state level and the state legislatures because at the end of the day what's happened is this huge federal government we got the big the united states has the biggest federal biggest government in the history of mankind and they're spending four or five trillion dollars a year it, it's ridiculous the pentagon is the world biggest world's biggest office building you know that's not what the limited government was supposed to be and the only way that can be taken back is by the states themselves because at the end of the day the constitution you know, it is a contract between the states. They created a central government, you know, for very specific, limited reasons. And 
we can get that power back by acting locally. Uh, what Texas is doing right now is very encouraging. We're starting to see people, you know, uh, Google Google searches are going way up on the ideas of nullification and states' rights. And so I think it has to be locally. But uh, yeah, I think Trump is, um, you know, the momentum's all on his side. I track uh, real clear politics, uh, tracks all the different polls, and I keep a spreadsheet of it to notice the trends. Yeah, he just keeps trending up. Um, and by, as Biden's disapproval goes down and down. Do I think Biden will be the candidate in 2024? Probably not. Uh, they got Democrats have a bit of a dilemma, though. They've got to uh, find a way to uh, leapfrog Kamala Harris, who's even less popular than Biden. I'm not sure how they do that. Uh, it'll be interesting. You know, I think it's going to be one. It's, it's going to be an amazing year. And of course, it's coupled with the fact we've got another eight million fighting age men have come across the southern border. So, uh, I don't see well, the look, I, power. Yeah, I mean, look, I I know definitely the oligarchy wants to get rid of nation states. That that's that's a theme. I've seen that as a theme for a very long time. Um, is that world government must supersede nation states because sovereign nation states are irrelevant, incapable of dealing with global issues. Um, that's why we need a, a a managerial class of technocratic elite who are scientifically managing the system according to scientific principles. Now, I'm not against the idea of using scientific principles, but it has to be tied in some way to. The idea of uh, the sacredness of human life, the idea that there's like natural law at play, whereas these technocrats seem to just be obsessed with control, feudalism, making us stupid and depopulated. Um, <laughs> and uh, and not really they don't really seem to have much of a of a of a love, let's just say, for for humanity. If, if anything, it's the very opposite. It's a death cult um, at this point. If the U.S. was to be able to bring back the sort of thing the the taking down of the the too big to fail structure the uh, the the removing of the legal uh, loopholes that allow for corporations to get all of these to get basically have the power of God and to act a little bit more in their actual self interest build things again um you know in what what sort of steps do you think could be taken or what would that look like well, you talk about the technocrats. Let me touch on that one first, because uh, mm. I think the history of the technocrats are very important. It was a big movement uh, in America in the 1920s and 30s, um, and they had to go into hiding because when you take technocracy to the nth degree, to its ultimate conclusion, it looks like Nazi Germany. And when people saw what the technocracy, you know, some of the things that happened then, they, um, you know, basically the technocrats went into hiding for 40 or 50 years in America. Funny side note, um, Elon Musk's grandfather was the uh, president of the Canadian Technocracy Party. I always yeah. think that's a fun side note. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier China, um, you know, with a brick and road initiative. And we've been talking about Putin quite a bit this week because he was on Tucker. I think that anybody who really wants to understand what Russia is all about needs to read the Primakov Doctrine. Um, mm. And it talks about the three pillars of Russian foreign policy. And this was written in 1998. Uh, Putin was a student of Primakov. And one of the things he yeah. talks about was getting Russia out from underneath the control of the uh, monopolar uh, dollar he hegemony. And that's basically what he's done. He's executed the Primakov doctrine. And it's well-reasoned. And if you're a Russian, it makes a ton of sense. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm American and I'm a patriot. I'm wearing a flag right here. So I love my country, but I don't necessarily appreciate its actions or that of the corporations uh, that have caused it to do on their behalf. Um, so what does it look like? I think decentralized. I, I think we really have to decentralize the power. Uh, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. The U.S. government's you know ninety percent bigger than it should be, and ninety five percent of the stuff that Congress does, they have no authority to do in the first place. You know, if we're going to pretend to be a constitutional republic, you need to 
you read the Constitution, and perhaps that requires a convention of states. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of that, and I think that may have to happen. But it's got to start with state nullification, like what's happened with Texas. So as as important as the president, when you say election, state nullification, do you mean like like secession, or what, what does that mean? State nullification? I just don't know what that means. Basically, when when the Constitution was written, uh, the um, the Supreme Court was not the arbiter of whether something was constitutional or not. If Congress passed a bill that the state said was not constitutional, they would just say, no, we're not going to do that. You have no power to enforce it. The states are the, are the sovereign, not the federal government. If the federal government does things it's not supposed to, the states can say no. And they have every right to do that. That's why I was so uh, such a proponent of Carrie Lake's campaign. I wanted her to be governor because she was you know, going to be the first governor that really had the guts to say no. And you get enough states doing that. No, it doesn't end in, in a secession. What it does is say, look, we've got a constitutional crisis. Let's sit down in convention and discuss this openly and transparently and see what needs to be fixed. The Constitution is a living and breathing document, but sure. the way it's supposed to be changed is to call the amendment process, not by winning 50% plus one of the vote in one single election. You have to go through the amendment process and convince three quarters of the states that a change needs to be made. And we can do that. We can get back to being a constitutional republic. Right. That has to be the end game. Well, I think, yeah, definitely the deliberative process is is vitally important because the the idea of a, of a sovereign nation is that it's made up of sovereign people. And to be a sovereign person means you know how to use your mind in conjunction with your morality and your conscience in order to use reason and reason through conversations with people who you disagree with. And to the degree that we have faith that we can all do that and not just agree to disagree, um, we're in a place where we can get somewhere. You can actually have healthy dispute, healthy competition, healthy dialogue. Uh, that br brings about some sense of compromise, some sense of win-win um, outcomes. And if you don't have that and you just have the will of the power over the powerful over the weak, well, you get exactly what we've always gotten throughout history, which is systems of feudal empire run by hereditary elites who don't like us, <laughs> um, managing div divided and conquered um, squabblers who are too busy fighting over their scraps and their little local differences that they can't see what they have in common. So I think that we have a lot of history um, teaching us these lessons on what not to do, how not to fall for these traps, and what is it that human beings being human are actually able to do when we fight for our freedoms in an effective way versus a garbage way. <laughs> um, so I, I do think that that's, uh, that's very valuable that you are able to bring a lot of that, that um, history to the conversation. I don't necessarily know if I completely agree with the assessment fully, fully, fully on John Locke yet, but that's another side conversation to go into in the future. Um, there's something that I wanted to just point out uh, before we we round out. Um, Edward Snowden uh, is, no, sorry, not Edward Snowden. I'm so sorry. Julian Assange uh, is going to be facing a possible extradition in uh to the United States soon. Uh, what is your thoughts on Assange and the fight right now to release Assange to bring some justice to that situation um, currently? Well, I hope, first of all, we're wishing him good health. I mean, the last uh, last videos I saw of him, he's not looking that good. Um, apparently, Julian Assange knows whether uh, Russia actually hacked the DNC back in 2016. If mm. he can unravel that, uh, an awful lot of what's happened since between Russiagate, Spygate, uh, all kinds of scandals that our federal government has done to basically on the premise that Russia was spying. Um, it, it's a world changing event. So I want him to come back home and actually tell, you know, testify. What do you, what do you know, Julian? Absolutely. 
That's a good point. That's a very good point. And keep in mind that TNT will be broadcasting from various locations throughout London um, starting February 20th uh, to the 21st uh, during this case. And so people can follow that on uh, today's news talk, TNT Radio on TNTradio.live. And for you, where do people reach you, uh, Brady? Uh, Rumble is on my main channel. You can find me at war underscore hamster. I'm on Twitter at war underscore hamster 1776. True social under war underscore hamster. And I am a guest every Sunday night on Patriot Soapbox at 8 p.m. Eastern on DLive. All right. Thank you. So till next week, this has been Connecting the Dots on TNTradio.live.